Hello everyone, I'm Therese Bottomley, editor of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. This is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Today I'm talking with Fedora Zarhan, the reporter who just published a four-part series on the killings in 1974 and 1975 of four black Portlanders by police. You can find the stories called The Forgotten Four at projects.oregonlive.com forward slash the hyphen forgotten hyphen four. Fedor, welcome back to Beat Check. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So for readers who haven't yet finished the series, let's give them an overview of what happened in Portland starting in 1974 and spilling into the next year. So in 1974 and 75, Portland police killed four black Portlanders, three men in 74 and a 17 year old in 75. So this is in the space of about five months. And this is you know, like really uh, unprecedented uh, string of police killings um, before and before then and since then. And after the fourth killing of a teenager in this kind of botched sting operation, there were protests, there was demands for an inquest from the um, district attorney, there was a federal investigation. So it was kind of, uh, and it was the kind of the first time there was a, as broad, uh, a, such a broad coalition of groups coming together to protest police uh, violence. So um, you started this reporting as part of the Oregonian Oregon Lives look inward after the murder of George Floyd. In that case, reporter Rob Davis and photographer Beth Nakamura produced the project Publishing Prejudice, which looked uh, really deeply at the Oregonians' historic racism and our failures in the past. And I know that that was part of the concept originally for this was these episodes really weren't covered extensively and in depth the way they might have been today. So tell me about the original concept, which I guess was uh, going to be a podcast. So the original concept, you know, like, like you said, we were doing this broad examination post 2020 uh, social justice um, movement. We were sort of trying to figure out, okay, what's our role in all of this? Like we, of course, as journalists, as a news, as newspapers historically try to treat ourselves as, see ourselves as external to all things as, as, as much as possible, you know, um, to the point of like some organizations, you know, not testifying on bills that affect the newspaper industry, you know, and so forth. But after 2020, we're like, okay, let's also like consider what the story here is. And then of course we saw, you know, through Rob Davis's reporting, um, uh, and had our suspicions confirmed that we're not just these impartial actors. We are definitely a part of a larger system, a larger narrative, a larger story. So, and after that kind of awareness, we wanted to see if we could do something to, um, compensate isn't the right word, but just to, to, to rebalance, to, to do what we could a little bit to rebalance the scales, uh, to, to rebalance the scale just a little bit to the extent possible. So the original idea of a podcast was to uh, examine in every episode various aspects of Oregon's history that uh, you know, reflect its original idea as like a place comfortable for white Americans. You know, for example, looking at exclusion laws, looking at the gradual uh, segregation to smaller and smaller areas of uh, Native Americans and so forth. So it was going to be, 
to an extent, like a, a historical, a historic podcast. And the name, if I may say, state of exclusion of this theoretical podcast that has not come to be, but the name is great. And for that reason should probably be turned into a podcast, maybe. Yeah, that it's interesting as we, you know, we're on a podcast right now and it's a different medium for sure. And some stories are best told as a conversation like we're having right now. And some stories perhaps are better told in the form that uh, you and Beth Nakamura and Mark Graves with design by Mark Friesen were able to tell, you know, on Oregon Live. Um, so as a reporter, it was pretty clear that an obvious organizing principle was around the four people, um, three young men and a teenager, as you said, who were shot and killed. And I can only imagine that after so much time had passed, you know, family members might wonder, what are you doing here on their doorstep? And what is your agenda? And is there any trust there in terms of sharing really deep and, you know, emotional things. So tell us about how the reporting challenges went for you as a reporter and how you found those family members and friends who were willing to revisit that traumatic time. So that was definitely a mixed experience. Uh, and I absolutely went into it with this sense of like, I need to communicate to people that I think it is important, this is important, and why I think it is important. And to communicate the fact that like, we're really putting in um, some, putting some resources into this, you know, we're not just trying to get something out, like, basically to communicate, like, we mean it, and I mean it, you know. And in most cases, it didn't really take that much convincing, because to the people uh, I ended up writing about, like, they don't need convincing, they don't need to be told that this is important. Like For them, they know it's important. It doesn't matter how long it's been. Uh, it's just a question of them believing or trusting that I, I am also aware of the significance, you know, for anybody, everybody I talk to, uh, including relative, including like descendant, including um, like family members who never met the people who died. Uh, it was universally an emotional uh, subject. So, yeah, I, there were some challenges, of course, where, you know, for example, one um, person I talked to, uh, it was very difficult to reach him first trying to talk to his daughter who said, Oh, you know, he's busy and so forth. And finally re reached him and essentially listened to a lecture about how, you know, the Oregonian and other newspapers, you know, we're always just trying to make ourselves look good by uh, writing about the plight of uh, black folk and that, that this is, probably just another example of that and he doesn't want to be a part of that and nothing ever changes this kind of you know 2020 is not new you know the george floyd protests were not a new thing and every time after a protest there's like an interest and then it fades away and then ultimately nothing really happens and to this man his brother's life was was worth so much more than than that so you know that was a little um it was a little hurtful, of course, you know, what, what can you do? But then, you know, I talked to other people in the family who were like, oh, no, please, like, we really want people to know about what happened. We really, really do. This is a big deal. We want his photograph out there. We want people to know. Uh, 
you know, another person I talked to, you know, she, 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 she at some point after on her, on her fourth or fifth conversation mentioned that, you know, she'd always felt like she, she'd been sort of almost like waiting, wondering when someone's going to come and ask her to, to tell more, you know, because it was obvious that there was so much more to the story than, uh, than was known. You know, other folks, it's like they just, you know, definitely saw it as an opportunity. Um, for example, like Ricky Johnson's brother, Michael Johnson, uh, was just saying, like, uh, you know, he wants people to know his brother's name. You know, he wants people, he, he wants his brother's name to be chanted and repeated during uh, protests. So, you know, I think it was clear to people, like, okay, so if we want uh people to know these stories this looks like like an opportunity um to do that and you know of course just you know as as one does when reporting you kind of approach it with um uh some genuineness or like all genuineness of course what i really had on my side was uh some time and kind of a directive to like go forth and discover go forth and learn so i was able to actually sit down with Tonda, sit down with Michael for, you know, like several hours, you know, and, and keep coming back to them and, and really uh, be present in a way with, with uh, these folks in the way that it was critical to be, you know? Yeah. Very authentic and not in a hurry, you know, willing to sit and really take, take the time to stay in the conversation. Yeah, because trust, like I won't, like it's 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 a it's definitely true that tr the 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 building a trust relationship uh, was, um, you know, I never felt like oh, okay, I've gained trust and you know now we're good. You know, it's like I I, I did feel like I was constantly, and I was also told that like <laughs> everything I was doing and said was being watched. You know, and people were like oh you know. You know different families I talked to, they talked to each other, you know, people I didn't even know knew each other, you know, the one of them's telling me, yeah, well, you know, I checked in with so and so and she said, you're, she said, you're, you're, you, we, we can trust you. So fine, you know, we'll talk to you, you know, so it was just like, there's, the, it, it, it wasn't just like you waltz in and, and um, start taking, start taking notes. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, as a longtime Portlander, I was struck. It was a bit of a walk down memory lane with, you know, the names, you know, Kent Ford and Daryl Milner and Ron Herndon and Rutherford and uh, Shamsuddin. I mean, it really um, took me back. And, you know, there's a reason for some of that distrust, which we explored in Publishing Prejudice. We were very much a newspaper for buying for white men for a long time and did not uh, pay attention to issues in the black community. And so when you were looking through looking at the Oregonians coverage of 1974 and 75 through a lens of today, like how did it rate? You know, we, we know we missed stories. We know we told them mainly or solely from a sort of white male power broker standpoint. What did you find in looking at the archives and talking to people who lived through uh, the the killings in 1974 and 75 in Portland? So I don't know to what extent I'm qualified to make like a big historic, like historical assessment of how we did, right? You know, that's a subject for like someone's PhD at some point, you know, not mine. Uh, but 
I would say that I think like soon after what we've what we wrote about here, what soon after these events, there was more of a an awareness like, oh, okay, there is this big big theme of our time and of our place that is like police relations with black Portlanders and like the power structures in black Portland. Like it, to, to, in my sense, and there very well might be people from that time who would disagree with me that starting in like the late seventies, early eighties, again, so just several years after this, it became less of a, Oh, this is something we write about sometimes to like, okay, this is a major issue of our time. This, this is not a peripheral thing. This is something that is like foundational and something that we will visit and revisit and revisit time and again. In 74 and 75 specifically, um, you know, I feel like, of course, from, from, I mean, from my perspective, we could have done a lot more uh, in terms of like looking deeper at these four killings. I personally, I, I imagine that one of the reasons potentially that we didn't is because, you know, in all four cases, the, the people, they had guns, you know, and two of them, the men fired their guns, you know, so I can imagine there being a part of, you know, it, 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 in the reporters and editors minds as they're you know, figuring out, okay, we've got like a million stories to do, what are we really going to dig into that they might have said, well, you know, let's move on because here there's, you know, uh, the, the guy had a gun. That, of course, misses the bigger point that this is like that you know, this is that this is part of a much bigger story for black Portland, you know, where just the mere act of like looking into what exactly happened, even if the person had a gun, you know, just asking those questions, trying to talk to families would make w w would be meaningful, you know, like, so, for example, like with this series, you know, we spell out exactly what happened. There's no hiding that like. There were guns involved, you know, and, 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 and so forth. There's no hiding that, like, Ricky Johnson uh, was trying to rob somebody uh, with a gun that was unloaded. But still, you know, if you have a gun pointed at you, you don't give a damn whether it's loaded or not in that moment because you don't know, right? So, like, we, we, nobody's hiding behind that. But that's not the point. The point isn't, like, who's at fault, who's not at fault. The point is, like, cumulatively, together, this is part of, like, this city's history and thousands and thousands of people's attitudes towards uh, the establishment, essentially, not just to the Oregonian, not just to the police bureau, but just to like the, the, the majority society is uh, influenced, uh, if not shaped by these kinds of traumatic and tragic uh, events. So I think what I'm trying to communicate, I think, in these stories is, is not a he's right, she's wrong, or she's right, you know, that, that's not, that's not the point here. The, the, the point is, like, these are all, to, from my perspective, these are all just tragedies, you know, a, each one of these cases is just sad. It's just sad, you know, for everyone involved. And that, to me, is like the thing that can unite, that, that does cross the um, uh, racial uh, misunderstandings you know we can all understand like that it's sad you know i think yeah, somebody lost a son somebody lost a brother yeah the, you know I, I i did hear from a few readers who were saying well why are you writing these stories they, they there were guns involved and you you were not setting out as an investigative reporter to examine whether the shootings were justified 
but your approach is more explanatory. It's like there is a reason that members of the community look at police interactions that are end up being fatal. Uh, there is a lens through which they look at those interactions today that is rooted in, um, for many people in this particular time. And there were changes, you know, for the first time in inquest, which is uh, uh, was an attempt, I think, by the establishment to be more transparent. So, um, you know, I, I presume it might have been a little tricky to talk to family members about the issues of, you know, what exactly happened and the fact that guns were involved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it it was, but I think part of what what I set out to do, of course, is to figure out, so can we find out a little bit more about what happened? And I think a lot of the families were operating in a vacuum. A, you know, the, the people alive today were, say, siblings, and so, and their parents just didn't tell them much about what happened. B, uh, nobody I talked to uh, either requested or was able to obtain records from the police bureau uh, that detailed, uh, you know, the available material, uh, indicating like just what, 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 what happened and what people said and what witnesses said and what the officers said and so forth. So, but you know, and so, so having more, being able to give people more information helped fill that vacuum. Like that was kind of a parallel track in the reporting. Like as soon as I got some records or I got information, it'd be stuff I would give to the families because, you know, you know, I had people asking me questions about what their own siblings told right. me, you know, because, right. you know, for some people when this happened 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago, there was kind of like a shutdown effect, like, okay, you know, there was this burst of, of like of grief of where everybody's talking about it. And then people just shut down and they don't really, it doesn't become something that like people talk about very much. And that's also a cultural, I mean, that's a cultural, like, um, uh, it's a generational thing. You know, I think now there's a lot more, uh, yep. yeah. Where families might not talk about painful things. Yeah. The, um, so your skills as a reporter, you were able to get to original documents, you know, so I, I know you looked at our archives, but what other sources did you rely on for documentation? So the key, of course, were the Portland Police Bureau files that had transcripts of interviews with witnesses, with um, you know, descriptions of conversations, descriptions of the scene. Uh, you know, one case where there were like many, many officers involved, you know, I had transcript with every single one of them. Also crime scene photos that the Bureau provided. Um, you know, first they, in, in Ricky Johnson's case, that was pretty important to kind of be able to see how far the gun landed from his body. You know, first they provided a redacted photo from the crime scene where you see the gun on the, the unloaded gun on the carpet in the living room and then in the distance you know far, clearly in the kitchen there's just a black rectangle um so was able to get that without the black rectangle and you can see ricky's body kind of pointing in the away from the gun towards the kitchen door and like clearly far away clearly far away from the gun so that was some this i think like powerful visual evidence that kind of spoke better than you know anything 
that we could pull from the um, written records. Also, you know, a large part of the story, part three, parts three and four, uh, are actually about the life and fate of Kenneth Sanford, who's the officer who uh, killed Ricky Johnson. Um, and the reason is that you know, his story is fascinating. You know, I think we often are looking at things either from like the victim perspective or the cop perspective. But here, you know, you have a guy whose life was really turned upside down um, by this killing, and you know. Again, by um, you know, citing some some public records laws, we were able to get the several psychological evaluations uh, performed, um, one in 1978 and one in 2005, of Kenneth Sanford that basically spelled out like how um, he wasn't doing uh, that well, and this ended up being like critical because his family did not want to talk to me at all. His friends did; they did. Allude to, to show the, the long lasting psychological effects on him as well as on the family of the victim. You know, I'm sure it was tricky too to reach out to those police sources from, you know, your decades ago. And what was that like getting um, former police officers, retired police officers to talk to you? I think, I think w w what I found, w what was enjoyable about it was just like with the families, uh, like none of this stuff is ancient history. You know, I mean, this is when the, the, these people, they were in their 20s and 30s. You know, this was like the, the kind of like their most impressionable years. And here they are involved in life and death matters. You know, that's a lot for, for a person, I imagine. And some people, you know, want nothing to do with it. Others just kind of tentative tell me, hey, you know, other people aren't probably going to want to talk to you because generally speaking, we don't trust the media. But, you know, people definitely opened up. They wanted their story out there or they wanted me to get it right. Um, and also, honestly, a lot of time these, these guys, they just wanted to, um, it was clear that this was overall like their police career in the 70s and 80s was like a meaningful time for them. Uh, it really shaped who they are, and you know, now they're in their late seventies. You know, one of them. I mean, every single time I called, I remember I, I called like at eight a.m. There's a TVs in the background. You know, he's like, "Hey, sorry, let me turn it off." So, I mean, I have no idea what what his what his life was about, but it was just just struck me that like no matter when I called, you know, and and he, I think he, you know, he among other people just enjoyed talking about um, about. Uh, about that time, the trickiest part, of course, was uh, conversations about um, uh, people. A lot of officers, a lot, a lot of former uh, bureau, former policemen. Um, there's a lot of hemming and hawing and mm, 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 when talking about like the actual impact and how uh, the protests and the inquest and so forth made changed how they changed how they did their jobs you know there's a lot of like trying to say without saying very directly um that like okay yeah we we kind of had to do things um differently so yeah the the years since these killings i mean there were some really tough times between the portland police bureau and members of the black community um and then, you know, you get to the George Floyd era of massive protests. Did, did anything about this reporting kind of make you see those 
very, very large and sustained protests in Portland, which is a predominantly white city, to kind of give you a different perspective on those protests? I mean, I think, you know, one of the, the pieces of feedback I've heard, or maybe not, one of the things I've heard frequently from people who read the series who were not sources is essentially that, um, oh, wow, yeah, this reminds me, this has been going on forever. You know, this really has been going on uh, for a long time, that what we had in 2020 wasn't, uh, it was new, but it wasn't that new, and the issues that were being protested weren't that incredibly new. So that was a whole process of, um, of discovery. And, you know, I think probably one of the, strangely enough, one of the most, like, mind-blowing reporting moments um, throughout this came when I when I really uh, started to dig into the Kerner Commission report, um, which, you know, so reading some passages of it, it's like you start, like, there's, like, tears almost, like, well, welling up because just the, the language is so um, uh, stridently uh, righteous in, like, in a good, in, in a, in a, not self-righteous, but like stridently, like, no, for real, this is a problem. Like for real, there is discrimination and we for real need to do something uh, about about this. And if I if I have a moment, I'd love to read. From... Yeah, sure. I, I know what you mean. It's like there was an opportunity. It was laid out, literally laid out uh, by the Kerner Commission. And yet and yet here we are with the same some of the same issues today. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And, and so um, just. As a pause, I'm, I'm going to, you know, some of the language is outdated. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, in speaking of the Negro, we do not speak of them. We speak of us. For the freedoms and opportunities of all Americans are diminished and imperiled when they are denied to some Americans. The tragic waste of human spirit and resources, the unrecoverable loss to the nation, which this denial has already caused and continues to produce, no longer can be ignored or afforded. Two premises underlie the work of the commission, that this nation cannot abide violence and disorder if it is to ensure the safety of its people and their progress in a free society. That's one. Two, that this nation will deserve neither safety nor progress unless it can demonstrate the wisdom and the will to understand, to undertake decisive action against the root causes of racial uh, disorder. This report is addressed to the institutions of government and to the conscience of the nation, but even more urgently to the mind and heart of each citizen. The responsibility for decisive action, never more clearly demanded in the history of our country, rests on all of us. This was 1968. You know, like, this was after you know protests and riots across the country in 1967, and you know there's just so I don't it's. Very aspirational language, very clear directive about decisive action, and yet not as much done, perhaps, as, as the writers of that report had dreamed. So thank you, Fedora, for the terrific series, The Forgotten Four. It was our look back at a seminal moment in 1974 and 75 for Portland. And with that, I'll call it a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Tell a friend and help spread the word. 
The best way to support our journalism and stories like this one is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.